Glad to be. Good morning. Oh, that was better than the first service. <laughs> Don't tell them I said that, but it was better. Um, well, but you got to sleep in, so it's okay. I'm really glad to be here with you guys. Um, I, I hate that it's under the circumstances with what's going on uh, with, with Mike's family and the passing of his dad, but I'm really thankful for the opportunity to be here that he uh, trusted me to come and to fill the pulpit for him. Mike is a dear friend, and uh, Mike was a great pastor to me. Mike was my youth pastor, and uh, Mike has been a great mentor to me and a great friend. And uh, it's my privilege to be here. We love your church, uh, all of your staff. I'm excited in about a month I'll be with your students uh, over in the Badlands and DeLand uh, at student camp. If you've never been there, you don't get that reference. Um, but it is a, a barren wasteland where we go and uh, worship the Lord together uh, on a drying up lake. But it's good and we have a lot of fun. And I'm excited to be there uh, with the students. But you're so kind and gracious to me and my family. And I'm so glad to be with you. But if you do have your Bibles, flip over to Mark chapter 9. Hopefully you marked your place there. But if not, that's where we'll be here again this morning. I don't know about you, but a lot of times uh, for me, life is really a roller coaster. And it is ups and downs. And so often we talk about life being a roller coaster and we talk about that sort of in seasons. You know, like, we, well, we had a good few months and then it was really hard. But if you're anything like me, a day can be a roller coaster where things seem to be going really well and then not so great, or things can just be going as good as they've ever gone, but with a phone call, uh, with an interaction, um, if you're a parent, uh, someone brings home a progress report, uh, it, it can just be the smallest thing, getting called into the boss's office. There can be, it can be any circumstance that suddenly seems to throw life off of the rails. And what's crazy is it seems that in the moments we're doing our best, uh, we'll do something just completely ridiculous to bring everything crashing down and to throw our life off the rails. And the context of the story that we're going to be looking at this morning, uh, the passage here in chapter Mark, is really built around a roller coaster that the disciples are riding. Uh, when you go back to the 8th the chapter of Mark and you read about what's been going on with Jesus teaching his disciples, as Jesus has gotten into and begun to teach the disciples and share with them about really the ultimate purpose on why he's come, that he's come to die, that he's going to have to go up to Jerusalem. And he has a conversation with the disciples uh, and he asks Peter, he addresses Peter and asks him a question. He says, Peter, who do people say that I am? And Peter answers him and he says, well, some people say you're one of the prophets. Some people say you're Elijah. Come back. Some people say you're like John the Baptist. He says, no, Peter, who do you say that I am? And Peter says, well, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus looks at Peter in that moment. He says, yes, Peter, exactly. And on that rock, the rock of your confession, what you have just said, that I am the Christ, the son of the living God, I am going to build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And it seems that in that moment with Jesus' affirmation that Peter gets a little swagger. Uh, Peter starts feeling pretty good about himself. And he's walking around. And so just a few moments, hours, no more than a day later, Jesus is teaching them again and he begins to talk about the fact that he's got to go to Jerusalem and that he is going there to die. And Peter, uh, in a moment of real bravado, uh, takes Jesus to the side and it says that he literally begins to rebuke him. Now, I said earlier that he got a little swagger. You've got to have a lot of swagger to take the Son of God to the side and give him a stern talking to, right? So he says, um, Jesus, could you just give me a moment? Uh, Jesus, I, I know what you said, but we're not going to let that happen. Uh, you're not going to go up there. We're not going to let anything happen to you. And Jesus looks at Peter, who just moments before he had said, yes, Peter, on this rock, and I will build my church. He says, uh, Peter, get behind me, Satan. 
You know, and I think that somewhere in between those two moments, you have Peter being affirmed, and he's probably, you know, he's obviously feeling good because he felt like he could rebuke Jesus, and he's like, yeah, upon this rock, gates of hell will not prevail against it. And so the disciples had to, I just have to imagine, that the other 11, in the moment that Jesus is saying, get behind me, Satan, that they're over there going, ooh, upon this rock, upon this rock. Way to go, Peter, right? Like, you're not so bad now, are you? And so it's all of a sudden, upon this rock, get behind me, Satan. Well, then Jesus takes Peter, James, and John up to the mountain. And in an amazing moment of what we know, we we call it the Mount of Transfiguration, because up there, Jesus, in a moment unlike anything that had ever been experienced on earth, Jesus peels back his humanity to reveal his deity and his glory. And those three disciples see Jesus in his glorified form. And if that's not enough, all of a sudden, two other figures appear, and it's Elijah and it's Moses, and they're all talking. And so the other three are watching this powwow happen between a glorified Christ, uh, Elijah representing the prophets, Moses representing the law, and they're all talking to each other, and it just doesn't get any better, right? There's no better church service than what they're experiencing. And they're all excited, and the best thing Peter can come up with is, let's never leave! It is good that we are here, and we should stay here. This is awesome. Let's not go down. And Jesus is like, Peter, no. I didn't bring you up here to keep you up here. I brought you up here to show you why we have to go back down. Oh, okay. And this is Peter's entire existence as a disciple. Nailing it, failing it. Nailing it, failing it. And I don't know if your life ever gets like that, where there's moments that you're just nailing it, and then all of a sudden you feel completely inadequate. Just completely helpless. And all of a sudden you're in a situation where not only does the situation seem hopeless, you feel helpless. And where they come down, they come down suddenly to the bottom, and what we find is a situation that's taking place is we find out that the other nine disciples aren't doing any better than the other three that were up on the mountain. And Jesus brings them into a chaotic situation that is taking place as two groups are forming and arguing with one another, but in the midst of all of that, there's a boy who is in desperate need of help and his father who is desperately seeking help for his son. And here what we're going to find is you say, well, why do I experiencing these moments, these seasons, these days, where it's from, from way up high to way down low, and I don't know what to do. What do I do in the midst of it? This passage, this story is a beautiful picture of why it's happening, for why we feel the way we do in the midst of it, and what needs to happen for us to come out of it. So there's, there's three pictures painted here, and I want you to see them as we walk verse by verse through this passage of Scripture. The first thing I want you to see is a ruthless enemy. A ruthless enemy. Look at verse 14. It says that the disciples, they come down and there's a great crowd around them and the scribes and they're arguing. And it says that Jesus comes and he says, what are you arguing about? And it says that someone else, he's addressing the disciples, what are you arguing about? But this other voice comes from the crowd and says, teacher, I've brought my son, he's possessed by a demon. I brought them to be healed and the disciples, they could not do it. And so Jesus begins to ask him about his son, and the passage of Scripture tells us a lot about the bondage that this boy is experiencing. In verse 17, it tells us that he's mute and that he's deaf. And in verse 21, Jesus asks him how long he's been dealing with it, and he says he's been dealing with it from childhood, literally from birth. And then in verse 17, it also tells us that that he's got, it's a demon that's causing this to happen and it manifests itself physically and it throws him on the ground and he'll foam at the mouth and his jaws, they lock up and his teeth grind and his body literally goes rigid like a board. What we would know is seizures and it it, it throws him down and it says that there are times that it, it throws him into a fire and it throws him into the water and it's trying to destroy him. 
And this is a devastating picture, especially for anyone in here who is a parent. To imagine having a child, that this is their existence. And it says there, you say, well, eh, how, how bad is it? Well, think about how bad it is for this young man, because he's deaf and he can't hear. So for his whole life, his dad, his mom, his family, they've tried to speak words of comfort to him, to tell him it's okay and that they're going to take care of him and that he's going to be all right, but he never hears one of them. He sees their mouth moving, but he doesn't know what they're saying. And every fear that he has inside, every terror that he experiences, every frustration, every question, you see, he can't express it because he can't talk. Because he's mute. So he feels the terror and he can't express it and he's receiving comfort, but he can't even hear it. He's trapped inside his own body. He's isolated, he's suffocating, he's paralyzed. And this is a picture of what the enemy wants to do to you. You understand that we face a ruthless enemy. The Bible tells us in John 10 that there is an enemy, his name is Satan, and that he has one purpose, one singular goal, and everything he does is towards that goal. He wants to steal, to kill, and to destroy. He wants to steal from you. He wants to steal your joy. He wants to steal your happiness. He wants to steal your purpose. He wants to steal your love. He wants to, he wants to destroy. He wants to destroy your marriage. He wants to destroy your children. He wants to destroy everything that Christ is working in you and for you. He ultimately wants to kill. He has one singular goal. He takes no days off. He takes no breaks. He is relentless. When we lay down to sleep, he is still going. When we go on vacation, he is still working. When we're slacking off and we leave the Bible sitting on that end table, he has not stopped. He has not let up. He has not relented. He keeps working, and it is with the goal to absolutely destroy he wants to isolate you from the people you love. He wants to isolate you from a church where you can receive hope and help. He wants to isolate you and keep you away from the people of God, the things of God, and the Word of God. He wants to suffocate the life and the hope and the joy out of you. He wants to paralyze you in such fear and anxiety that you're able to make no progress in life. And as you look at that boy, many of you are looking at him going, that's me this morning. I'm suffocating. I'm paralyzed. I'm helpless. I don't know what to do. And the really damaging part is you've gone to many people looking for help and you just can't seem to find it. And that's what happens to the dad in this story. Because not only do we see this, this picture of this ruthless enemy who's doing everything he can to destroy us, but on the other side you've got completely inadequate disciples. Inadequate disciples. Now, it says that this man brought his son. He had heard about Jesus. He knew what Jesus was able to do. And it says that he brings his son to Jesus, hoping that he can be healed. But when he gets there, Jesus isn't there. Jesus has gone with the other three disciples up to the mountain, and the other nine are there. And the other nine, they make an attempt to cast this demon out of the boy, but they're unable to do it. And so when Jesus comes in, and he just puts them on blast in front of Jesus. Ah, I tried to get your disciples to do it, but they couldn't do it. And they're just standing over on the side. And so, why weren't they able to do it? Because ultimately, we see that Jesus is able to deliver him. But before we take a look at what Jesus was able to do, I want us to stop just for a moment and realize why the disciples couldn't do it. Why they couldn't do it. Why were they inadequate? You see, in verse 19, Jesus expresses his frustration with them. He says, Oh, faithless generation. He's talking to the disciples. How long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. 
See, Jesus, he had just been transfigured, and the best that his guys could come up with was, oh, let's build some booths. Many times Jesus is teaching about the kingdom, and he'll roll up on the disciples, go, what are you guys talking about? We're like, oh, we're just talking about who's going to get to sit beside you when we get to heaven. So are any of you teachers? Do we have any teachers in the room that you taught, you teach anything? A handful of you teach Sunday school class, have any kind of student? Here, be encouraged. There has never been a slower class than the disciples, okay? You will never have as slow a class as the disciples. These guys lived with Jesus. They heard Jesus teach these sermons firsthand. They watched him with their very eyes perform miracles. They got to see things like the transfiguration. They were the ones serving the buffet line at the feeding of the 5,000, the 4,000, all the time that these people are being fed. They're sleeping where he sleeps. They're walking where he walks. They hear every conversation, every interaction, and yet they just don't get it, right? And I identify with that because that's the story of my life, not getting it, going, why did I say that? Why did I do that? I knew what to do. It's Paul in Romans, right? All the stuff I want to do, I'm not doing. All the stuff I don't want to do, I keep doing that, right? This is the theme of our life. And so, you know, and we're rising, we're falling, we're failing. And so Jesus is able to heal him. And after all of that takes place, and we'll go back to it, but I want to skip to the end of the passage just for a moment. Because the disciples, after all of this has taken place, it says in verse 28 that they take Jesus over once they're in private, right? They don't want to ask him in front of everybody because they're already embarrassed enough. But they say, "Uh, Jesus, why couldn't we do it? Why couldn't we do it? And he tells them in verse 29, he says, this kind can only be cast out with prayer. And some of your translations say in fasting. Now, it's easy to read that verse and to kind of get mixed up and going, well, there's special demons cast out with special processes. But we don't want to miss the very simple thing that Jesus is communicating here. Jesus says this kind can only be cast out with prayer. Now, they weren't able to cast it out, so that means they weren't doing the one thing necessary to cast the demon out. Jesus is looking at him going, you didn't pray. You didn't pray. And you say, well, that seems like a no-brainer, right? We're about to cast demons out of humans. I know, I, I'd like to think if I were in the situation... I'd get some sort of prayer together, right? Like, just Jesus help me, anything. But it says that they didn't pray. They didn't utter a word of prayer. That's the, the, the accusation that Jesus puts before them. It says, you didn't pray. You say, well, why wouldn't they pray? The same reason we don't pray. There's many reasons we don't pray. You know, we, we don't pray when we don't think we need to. Very simply. Listen, we don't pray ultimately because we don't want to. And at the very, very base level, we don't pray when we think we can do it ourselves. We don't pray when we think we're able. Because you see, the disciples had cast out demons before. If you go back to Mark chapter 6, Jesus had literally sent them out to do the work of the kingdom. He says, I'm sending you out to preach and to teach and also to cast out demons. And it says that these same disciples who were unable to cast the demon out of this boy were going out into the countryside, into the surrounding cities and towns, and they were casting out demons. They had been successful in this area before. They had a little bit of a resume that they were building. So when this man comes here later on, as they're all gathered at the bottom of the mountain, this man shows up with his son and says, I need somebody to cast the demon out of my son. These nine, they don't flinch. We got you, man. Cast out demons, we cast out demons. You heard about us? We're demon caster outers. That's what we do. Bring them over here. 
And so apparently, with no prayer, with no thought, with no reliance on God, they, they have the child there, and I don't know exactly how this part went down, because the Bible doesn't tell us. I don't know what words they used, so I'm going to say what I would have said. Look at the boy and go, get out! Crickets. Get out now! All right, guys, huddle up. What's going on? I don't know. I do, didn't you do this before? I've done this before. You saw me do it. You were there. I don't, why aren't we able? And so at this very moment, there's this group of guys over in the corner of the scribes. They're hanging out. And the scribes, they're these religious leaders who hated Jesus, everything he stood for, the things that he was teaching, because he claimed to be God, the Son of God, the Messiah. And so they were always just lurking, waiting for an opportunity to jump into the midst at what would be the most inopportune times. Now, I can identify with the disciples in this moment because this is the life of every preacher on Sunday morning, right? You're about to go in and preach, and someone stops you and begins the sentence like this. I know this is a bad time. But I'm just going to tell you all of this stuff right now before you get up and preach. It's like the person who starts a sentence with, I don't mean to offend anyone, but what's the rest of that sentence? Prepare to be offended. Really bad, right? So these guys are waiting, and they're like, oh, man, they didn't do it. And they rush in. Oh, look, it's the disciples. You're followers of Jesus. You said you could cast out the demon, but now you can't cast out the demon. So who do you really serve? Where does your power really come from? And now this big argument has erupted between the group. And all of it starts, and all of this is happening because these guys didn't pray. Because ultimately, they thought they could do it themselves. But the reality is, until you admit that you can't, you never can. See, you're here this morning, and your marriage seems hopeless. Hopeless. You're doing good for a few days, and then, listen, I'll be honest, it's usually the husband, right? We say something dumb, and just everything falls apart. Sometimes it's the wife, but a lot of times it's the husband. Things are going pretty well with you and your kids, and then they just do something not smart, right? Hey, I got an amen on that. All right, somebody brought extra amens. They just gave me one. All right. Things seem to be going good with that temptation that you face and that sin that you struggle with. You had made that promise to God that you were never going to do it again, but all of a sudden the situations and the circumstances of life have put you again, and you did it again. And you fell face first right into it. You were doing good with sort of your discipleship, and then you've fallen away, and you had done well with some of your commitments, but now you've fallen away. You got that child that you raised to love the Lord. You taught him the things of God, and you had them in God's house, and yet they've gone astray, and they've lost their way, and you've got a prodigal kid. Whatever's going on in your life, you feel hopeless. You're suffocating. You can't. And here's the reality. You can't do any of it until you admit that you can't. You can't be a good husband on your own. You can't be a godly wife on your own. You can't be a good parent on your own. You can't overcome sin and temptation on your own. You cannot defeat those things by yourself. You cannot go out there and snatch your prodigal kid out of the pig pen and drag them home and change their heart. You cannot do those things, but Christ can in and through you. See, the only way to be the husband God called you to be is Christ in you. The wife that God called you to be is Christ in you. And how do you connect? You pray. 
You pray. You rely on Him. You lean on Him. That's why His Word is so important. That discipleship, this time of gathering together and feasting around God's table, this is so important because apart from Him, we can do nothing. Anything we do is by God's grace. You understand that, right? The problem is we start to think that we're the ones who did anything. But just as if, you know, if I brought a, a, if we all went down, say we all went down to the Jacksonville Symphony, right? And we listened to some, I don't even know the name of one famous violin player, famous violin player John Smith, right? And he's down there and he's, John is just playing the fool out of the violin. And at the end of it, we're also overcome by what we've heard. We stand up and just start cheering, and we're cheering for an encore. You know what's not going to happen? Some little dude in a, in a black t-shirt and pants with a headset, you know, some stagehand, is not going to walk out with the violin and just hold out the violin for all of us to cheer and go, what an amazing violin. You killed it, violin. There's never been a violin like this violin. No, what we're asking for, what we are calling for, is for the person who played that instrument to come out and to bring that music out of that instrument again. Listen, anytime you or I do anything, anytime we get it just remotely right as a parent, husband, father, mother, coworker, employee, employer, neighbor, anytime that happens, that's not us. That's Christ playing in and through us. We are just the instrument. The master gets the applause. In the moment you try to play the instrument yourself, there's nothing but wrong notes and a mess that comes out of it. It's only Christ in us, and without him, we are completely inadequate. But you know what? Thankfully, the disciples didn't have the final word. They didn't have the final word. Because in the midst of this ruthless enemy and these inadequate disciples, in steps a life-giving Savior. And look at verse 19. Jesus says, How long do I have to bear with you? And four beautiful words. Bring him to me. Bring him to me. And immediately there's this confrontation between light and darkness. And as soon as this boy is brought into the presence of Jesus, it says that again, that demon convulsed him, threw him down. And Jesus so beautifully demonstrates compassion on the man. And he says, how long has this been happening to him? And he tells him from his birth. And he tells him about how this demon has tried to destroy him. And then the man asks a question. He says, listen, he begs him, have compassion on us and help us. He says, if you can do anything, have compassion and help us. And Jesus responds to him, and I love the response. He says, if you can. If you can. Now, this isn't condescending, right? This isn't Jesus going, if you can, right? Don't you know who I am? I'm Jesus. No, Jesus isn't. There's no question here about Jesus' ability. It's about whether or not this man is going to be humble. It's a question of his humility. He says, if I can, all things are possible for the one who believes. Jesus is saying, it's not whether or not I can do it. It's whether or not you're going to humble yourself and receive it. Whether or not you're going to humble yourself and believe that I can and receive what's about to be done. And what should and probably is the life verse for every Christian in this place. Verse 24, immediately the Father cries out. He says, I believe, help my unbelief. Right? And we've all been there. I know the stories. I know the answers. I know what I'm supposed to say. I know what the songs say and the preacher says and what my Christian t-shirt says and that beautiful picture that we hung up in the hallway. I know what all that stuff says, I believe. But man, in the depths of my heart, there's some unbelief. And Jesus, that's where I need you to help me. Meet me at my point of unbelief. 
You see, for you this morning, you can say all the right answers, but sitting here in the dark recesses of your soul, that unbelief is poking its head out. For some of you, it has to do with your marriage. You feel like your marriage is hopeless. You feel like your kids are hopeless. You feel like you're hopeless. That addiction that you're struggling with is hopeless. Your finances, it's hopeless. And this morning, you're going to have to cry and say, Jesus, I believe, but help my unbelief. It says in verse 25 that Jesus rebukes the demon and the demon leaves. But it says there in verse 26 that though Jesus cast the demon out, it says that the body appears to be like a corpse. And a lot of the people standing around were viewing what was going on. And their final judgment on the situation was that boy's dead. That boy's dead. And this is where a lot of you are this morning. See, everybody else has made declarations about your situation. See, they've all looked at your marriage and said it's dead. They've all looked at your prodigal kid and said it's dead. He's hopeless. He's a lost cause. They've looked at your addiction and said it, they're, they're dead. They're dead to it. It's, it it's, there's no way they're dragging themselves out of the hole that they've created. You're looking at your finances and everybody said that's, um, you know, you've sat across from the bank and they're looking at you going, it's, it's dead. It's helpless. You sat in a doctor's office and the doctors come in and for lack of better words has basically looked at you and said, you're dead. And it feels hopeless. But I'm here to tell you this morning, according to God's word, humanity does not have the final say concerning your soul. Your friends do not have the final say. The church does not have the final say. Jesus has the final say about your life and your circumstance. Because this is what Jesus does. In verse 27, we realize that Jesus isn't finished. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up and he arose. And this is what Jesus does. This is what he did. This is what he is still doing. He comes into contact with those who are in bondage and he raises them to life. Listen, it's been said by many other preachers in many other settings, but it bears repeating right now. Jesus did not come to make bad people good people. You understand that, right? Jesus didn't come to make bad people behave better. Jesus came to make dead people live. Jesus is in a business of resurrection. He is not remodeling messy situations. He is wiping them down clean and rebuilding them from the ground up. Your marriage is dead. Not did Jesus has the final say. He can raise it to life. He can change your heart, your spouse's heart, your child's heart. He can free you from the bondage of that addiction. He can bring and provide finances in ways that you never saw or imagined. If you are here and you are lost and dead in your trespasses and sins, Listen, you can be made alive today if you will repent and believe and come to Christ. Jesus has the final say. And because Jesus is eternal and because Jesus is God, it's not over until he says it's over. And he gets the final call in terms of your situation. Jesus gives dead children back to their parents. He brings kids back to life. And just as he did, he can bring your marriage back. He can give your family back. He can give that job back. He can give your health back. But even if he doesn't, he's still worthy. But know this morning that he can and that it's not impossible. See, Jesus, the most beautiful words. I love it, man. I cling to it. Those four words at the end of verse 19. Jesus ultimately and finally and most importantly said to this dad, 
And this changed everything. This moment where the man says, I believe, but help my unbelief. All these things. It it starts where Jesus looks at him and says, bring him to me. Bring him to me. And that's what Jesus is saying to you this morning. Your marriage, bring it to me. Your kids, bring them to me. Your finances, bring it to me. Your sin and your temptation, the struggle that you're facing, bring it to me. Your anxiety and your fear, bring it to me. Your hopelessness, bring it to me. And you're sitting here and you're going, Josh, that all sounds great. That'd be really easy if Jesus was here. That's the thing. He's here. Jesus is here. He always has been. He is. He always will be. He is in this moment, in this place. And you say, well, how do I bring it to him? You go back to what he told the disciples. You gotta pray. See, you can pray your, you can pray your marriage into the presence of Jesus. You can pray your prodigal kids into the presence of Jesus. You can pray your finances into the presence of Jesus. And go, here they are. You can pray your health into the presence of Jesus. You can pray your hopelessness, whatever it is that is crushing you, suffocating you, isolating you, whatever it is, you can pray it right into his presence and he will meet you right there. With every head bowed and every eye closed. If you're here this